Hello and welcome to episode 141 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I'm Anthony Malakian and I'm joined by James Rundle. Hello. So today, there were, we had a couple over the last week, week and a half or so, there have been some big events happening around the world. There was a World Exchange Forum in Greece. World Federation of Exchanges, Exchanges Forum. Forum. There yep. you go. Um, something was going on, and what did Amelia cover? What was that? Uh, there was Bloomberg Buy Side Week as well, which okay. happened in London. Yep, um, in London. And then over here, we had our Buy Side Technology North American Summit, which was obviously bigger than all of those. I of mean, course, yeah, yeah I mean, the most important event yeah, of the exactly. calendar year. Yeah, yeah um, I didn't do a good job of setting my wires here. Okay, um, <laughs> so we're going to kind of look at some interesting things that come out of it, and we're going to touch on many of the, I guess, just the major topics, as you kind of expect if you're having conferences around the globe. Everybody's kind of talking about similar things in, in a lot of different ways. The one that I wanted to start off with uh, first was... So we're on, I don't know how many of you know, we're no longer Incisive Media. We are InfoPro Digital. Incisive was a London-based company. InfoPro is based out of Paris. So Hence why it's actually pronounced InfoPro Digital. Digital. Let, let me, uh, I'm going to drop some more French words on you. James, you let me know how close I get to this. So let me, <laughs> okay. let me try it here. All right. So the, uh, the chairman of the Authority des Marches Financiers. Nailed um, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is that what, uh, Robert... Ophelia, <laughs> why don't why don't you go for it? Hey man, says la la, you know. What I'm <laughs> yeah, MF. What did, oh, how do you pronounce God. it? All right, Captain America, let's go. <laughs> the Autorité Marché Français. Oh my God. Um, and his name is uh, what was his name? Robert. Robert Ophelia. What is the E over the uh, yeah, Ophelia? Ophelia, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so he's the chairman of the AMF. He was speaking in London at this Bloomberg conference. Well, Robert O'Feal. Robert O'Feal, yeah, you know. Chelsea. Um, and he said that he warned, so this is an article written by Amelia Axelson. Again, we'll link to all this stuff. But he warned that lingering problems with the implementation of MIFID II and is warned that there are about data shortfalls ahead of possible deregulation resulting in the UK's exit from the European Union. This is clearly your area. There are some funny outtakes from this that I want to hit on. Oh, yeah, sure. Why don't you kind of maybe talk about what some of these concerns are first? Um, well, I, I, look, the EU is set up essentially with the premise that no one's actually going to leave it. No one even bakes us into kind of the rulemaking process or anything else. And... Uh, now that Brexit looks increasing, like it's actually going to happen in probably the most violent, catastrophic way possible, <laughs> everyone's turning around now and just going, hmm, <laughs> what does this actually mean now for all our contracts? The, uh, the FT ran a story saying something like four trillion in derivatives would have to be renovated um, the other day. And uh, yeah, I mean, the ESMA chairman, uh, Hamad Ali, our reporter in London, wrote a piece from the WFE forum. Um, he was saying, look, we need to, what we really need to do in an ideal world is get a memorandum of understanding done between the FCA and the UK and all 27 national regulators in the EU mm-hmm. so that from minute second one, minute one, day one of Brexit, we can just continue sort of in lieu of something bigger developing when we actually get like a formal treaty sort of signed between the EU and the UK. Um, but we can't do that because under EU law, you can't conduct bilateral treaties with EU state members. Um because it was obviously never envisioned that anyone actually wanted to leave the EU. Mm-hmm. So they literally can't negotiate a memorandum of understanding until the second the UK leaves the EU. Um, or they can negotiate it, or they can lay the building works, but they can't sign anything, which is problematic. Yeah. Um, you know, when it comes to, all of a sudden, the UK becomes a, what's called a third country under European Union um, sort of legalese. 
essentially a foreign country. And um, unless there's an equivalence agreement signed between EU regulators and a third country, you're not allowed to use that venue without attracting punitive capital charges. I'm going to ask a stupid question. Mm -hmm. Is that what level three guidance is? No, so uh, there's three levels of European regulation. So level one is um, when the... Uh, the rule is drafted between sort of the Parliament, the Council, and the Commission. Mm-hmm. Level two is the technical standards produced by ESMA or whatever technical authority is in charge of it. And level three is the Q and A's that come in afterwards. Gotcha. Yep. Um, so, so this kind of brings to um, a quote. So uh, uh, Robert said this uh, that quote: "The first nine months of MiFID two implementation have highlighted just how rapidly markets can shift, how essential level three guidance is, and how difficult a task it can be to ensure data quality." which led into this graph, which I really love that. Um, so Ophelia uh, said, uh, while innovation is championed in the market, some structural uh, changes have arisen not from innovative purposes, but as a way to circumvent MIFID II regulatory frameworks. One example he provided was the shift of European commodity derivatives contracts from European venues to U.S. venues or switch from regulated venues to over-the-counter. So this idea that, Wow, there's this thing called regulatory <laughs> arbitrage. It's well, amazing, this is a brand it? new thing. Uh, this is shocking. To, shocking, I say. You mean people are, are moving all of their derivatives business to the EU, and we're happy yeah. about that when yeah. American rules came in, but now it's going the other way. We, we don't like it. It's yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> you didn't anticipate. You didn't think this would be exactly what would happen, which is kind of what. Uh, like, and this is why the French have been pissing me off. Like one of the reasons, many reasons why the French have been pissing me off, <laughs> but specifically about Mifid II. The AMF has been so bullish. Um, on bringing everything to France, to Paris, and saying, okay, well, we have ESMO, we're now going to have LCH here, we, we want the UK to be excluded, we want the biggest punitive regime possible for the UK, and the AMF's really been leading the charge on this. Now they've realised that it might not all go in their favour, and they're turning around going, whoa, 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 <laughs> wait one minute, guys, like, you know, we need to sit down and talk about this like human beings, not like, uh, yep. you know, schoolyard rivals, which the French have always been to the UK, concerned they blocked our entry into the European Union twice when we first went. <laughs> um, thank you, Charles de Gaulle. Um, and it's just like it reeks of hypocrisy. Like All of a sudden, everyone's woken up and maybe they've started taking it seriously, but maybe people didn't think this was going to happen. Like, they thought that the Brits were just bluffing and eventually it would turn around, um, but now they've realised there's actually a hell of a lot of work to be done and obstructionist posturing isn't necessarily going to get us there. And then the other funny thing is that, you know, MIFID II is asking for a ton of data to be uh, delivered, um, to be to be reported on. And I love this quote because, again, this surprised you? Mm-hmm. Um, quote, but while the amount, oh, so let's go with the full quote here just to give them the full benefit there. Uh, MIFID II is also a sizable IT challenge, indeed perhaps an unprecedented data project, both for market players and market regulators, this data is at the very core of MIFID II implementation, since all transparency requirements hinge largely upon it. Which brings me to this one. But while the amount of data requested it is enormous, the quality of this data still leaves much to be desired. <laughs> oh my God! Oh my God! Oh my God! Have you talked to any anybody in data in in IT to yeah? The problem with beyond reporting requirements for for regulatory purposes, data quality. Get a damn subscription inside Market Data, okay? Get get something like that, all right? And you could have been reading about this for twenty five years here now, all right? I don't understand how this is how this can even be said with a straight face that we're asking for an enormous amount of data, but you know. The quality of the data we're getting is just really not up to par. This is what irritates me as well. I keep going yo-yoing on this. Like, 
you know, one minute someone uh, like the AMF will say the data's rubbish or something like that. The next minute, Stephen Mayor's on stage going, data's fixed, guys. We've done it. We've cracked it. It's all good. We're getting these great reports in. And we're just like, wait, no, you just told us it's rubbish. Yeah. And like, no, it's great. It's fine. Oh, Brexit? No, shit. Uh, it's all the UK's fault. Sorry. Um, so you're going to have to fix that, guys. Yep. It's, uh, and again, like, you know, Hamad's story the other week was um, just another example of guys waking up to this and going, Wait a minute, wait a minute. And it's almost like you can see them on like a sort of a, an investigation board, like drawing a little piece yeah. of red twine between things it's and step back going, oh my God. Kind it's of a like Charlie that. Kelly uh, doing uh, yeah, like Exactly, that. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they kind of realise that, holy shit, like all of the activity takes place in the UK. And once yep. they leave, we're not going to get that data because we haven't helped them out one bit and they're not going to be inclined to do this. So we don't get any of that data for our transparency calculations. And Wow, we're really screwed, aren't we? Yeah, and then <laughs> and so, which, you know. which led to this uh, quote of, quote, looking back over the past nine months, I believe there is a growing awareness that a number of legislative fixes will need to be considered in the short to medium term to correct certain deficiencies. In it's the like, short to medium, it's happening in well March. Well done. <laughs> I mean, come on. And like, but this is the thing that, that I don't get about this. Like, they're all like, you know, people like Stephen Mayor and Esmer are really, really good at what they do which is technical regulations. They're all lawyers, they're all regulators, they're all sort of like good at writing within the boundaries of what they're given, creating stuff that's there. You work for the European Commission, you might disagree with me, but whatever, it doesn't matter at this point. They're all turning around now and saying, well, we need to do this, but the uh, European rules say that we can't do it. Then change the rules. Yeah. Like, you know, this is an unprecedented event that requires a rule change. Make it, just all it requires, is, I mean, I know it's a, the European Union, which is going to take a lot more effort than this, but it requires a rule change saying that if... Article 50 has been triggered, and a member state is in the process of leaving. You can conduct negotiations with them, and you can put interim agreements in place for that thing. It's not that difficult. Yeah. And this just seems like another reason or another excuse for people to turn around and go, hey, look, don't look at us, Governor. Like, we couldn't do nothing. <laughs> like, you tied our hands. It's all Brussels, isn't it? Yep. So, you know. So, it's, just, <laughs> it, it, it's a good story. Give it a read. Uh, again, we'll link to it. And so let's move from one B-word, Brexit, to the other B-word, blockchain. And I'm sure there are plenty of people in the blockchain community that say, well, blockchain will solve Brexit for you, too. Don't worry. Blockchain will solve everything. Um, Brexit chain. Ahmad Ali, a reporter uh, alongside uh, Joe Gallagher in London. Uh, he went to Greece, correct, to attend the... Yeah, the the WFE event was in Athens. So he was on the ground there for us for a number of days. Agalos is sad that he left before. Uh, Dan, <laughs> yeah, a, I mean, the one man who would have yeah. been perfect for this. But uh, <laughs> sorry, buddy. So um, <laughs> one of the interesting takeaways here was Gilson Finkelstein. That's a weird way to pronounce to spell that last name. Man, I I really did take over the Dan DeFrancesco role as I took on becoming like you know uh, being uh, what do you call it the the ho- the not the color man the whatever. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Let's move on. Anyway, Gilson. <laughs> CEO of B3, which used to be uh, BMF Bovespa, now Brazil Bolsa Bacau. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. I think it's better than the French. Thank you. Um, <laughs> he had this to say, and I thought this was, this perfectly encapsulates the blockchain community in 2018 as far as the end users are concerned. Um, quote, in our case, we have been doing a lot of prototypes, pilots, uh, and tests. But so far, we haven't found a real competitive advantage in distributed ledger technology that would justify a switch from existing systems to DLT. And um, and then what is that here? Uh, but from um, an exchange CCP perspective, I'm not that convinced that it is going to be that fast as far of a change. Three years ago, I was much more concerned about switching 
now I think it is going to take longer. And that's his perspective. And it's like, yeah, exactly. Three years ago, this was going to solve all the problems that we ever experienced. And oops, yeah, that didn't oh, quite happen. No, yeah, it's not a cure-all for everything. I mean, and not to bother in trouble, have we not been saying this for the last three years mm-hmm. as well? Like, you know, there we, are some We have things. articles to prove this. <laughs> uh, we, we exactly. Like, I mean, I can see some music. Like, okay, look. So I did a story last year um, on the LSE putting a blockchain system in place for, I think, the Italian secondary market or something, mm-hmm. which, like until that point had been literally like notes stuffed in lawyers uh, drawers and shelves and that kind of thing and you can see where digitizing a market you put a blockchain system in that can help it out there right but there's no point in completely revamping and overhauling a clearing settlement system just to use blockchain there's yeah. no point in overhauling a matching engine which works fine as it is just to use <coughs> blockchain and they're discovering that right now you know yeah. <laughs> that's the thing um, and it's just like you're amazed though how some of the advocates are still Hammering that point home, man. I mean, like, I was on stage with uh, Salil Donde from uh, Alpha Point at the Biotechnology Summit on Tuesday, and um, there was an interesting discussion. But you know, at one point he was just saying how big this stuff was going to get, and I was just thinking, but it's not. Like, I mean, surely, you know, Alpha Point know what they're doing. They're working with the Royal Mint and the CME Group on that gold thing they're supposed to be doing, yeah. which isn't going anywhere. Um, but even and even speaking to a couple of people in the audience, so just sort of saying like, you know. Why is this relevant to me? Well, I'm on the buy side, man. I run like a hedge fund that's got a few like million under management. I, why do I need a blockchain? Yeah, you just don't. It's yeah. as simple as that. And which is a great lead into this. Just came across <laughs> our desk literally a couple minutes before we decided to record this. So I haven't had a chance to get through all of it. I read some great uh, excerpts. Uh, I don't think you need to. You just read some of these quotes. It's amazing. So it's Nouriel Roubini, yeah, um, famous economist. Um, you know, predicted the financial crisis, um, works at Stern School of Business at NYU, uh, and he's testifying uh, at a hearing of the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Community Affairs uh, <laughs> on exploring the cryptocurrency and blockchain ecosystem. Yeah. And the title of his, uh, of his testimony is, Crypto is the mother of all scams, and brackets now busted, bubbles, <laughs> while blockchain is the most overhyped technology ever, comma, no better than a spreadsheet slash database. Yeah. So, I mean, tell us what you really think, Nouriel. But like, you know, and there is just, there's so much good stuff in this. I'm going to read you just one paragraph, um, just to give you an idea of, of how angry this man is about yeah. Bitcoin and blockchain. So, under the subhead, Crypto Bubble 2017 and Crypto Apocalypse and Bust 2018. <laughs> It is clear by now that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies represent the mother of all bubbles, which explains why literally every human being I met between Thanksgiving and Christmas of 2017 asked me first if they should buy them, especially folks with zero financial literacy, individuals who could not tell the difference between stocks and bonds went into a literal manic frenzy of Bitcoin and crypto buying. Scammers, swindlers, criminals, charlatans, insider whales and carnival barkers all conflicted insiders tapped into clueless retail investors' FOMO, fear of missing out, and took them for a ride, selling them and dumping on them scammy, crappy assets at the peak that then went into a bust and crash in a matter of months like you have not seen in any history of financial bubbles. I mean, this guy just goes on for, oh, yeah. for 37 like, pages. I'm going to definitely... It's 37 <laughs> pages long, but I'm definitely going to read every last word. I mean, it's good. He, he does bring up some good points. I mean, I can't disagree with him on anything he brings up yeah. about the fact that, you know, people talk about how hack-proof... Bitcoin is and how it's so trustworthy and yeah. that kind of thing, you can just fork it or you can put a 51% attack on it. You yeah. know, it's fine. Um, you know, it brings up a point of since the invention of money thousands of years ago, there has never been a monetary system with hundreds of different currencies operating alongside one another. Yeah. It defeats the point of having a currency. Yeah. And 
you know, as is typical of a financial bubble, investors were buying cryptocurrencies not to use in transactions, but because they expected them to increase in value. And that is really the key point there. <laughs> all these guys shill all day about Bitcoin, but how it's going to change the world, how it's revolutionary. And like, yeah, I've seen Star Trek, man. Like, I know they use digital currencies and that kind of thing there, and, and they don't use paper money or whatever. This isn't that. This yeah. is garbage a lot of the time. It's scamming, and like, fair play to Nuri Aurobini for calling it out, because yeah. it is, like, you know... Noriel, I know you're a big shot, but we've been banging on about this for for many, many years. So come on our show, man. You got got an audience here as opposed to all these crypto publications that are popping up one per week. And listen, there's nothing bootleg about this operation. We're definitely not propping up our microphones with two two copy paper Paper boxes right now. Which we should really (laughs) return because somebody's going to order some more copy paper. We we did run out of uh, copy paper. I was thinking, oh, no, we're going to have to use our our waiting system. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that's good stuff. Let's move on to the other B, BST, Buy Side Technology, yes. North American Summit. Yeah. Uh, James, myself, uh, Amelia, David, and Max Bowie were there. Um, hopefully, we got to see many of you, hopefully. Um, many of you came up at least and said you're regular listeners, so now I'm going to prove if you're not already. Yeah. Um, a lot of interesting different topics there. I think, for me, I don't know if you'd agree, is this idea of data. Um, the cleanliness of data, the quality of data, all this kind of different kind of talk that dominated a lot of the different discussions that mm-hmm. went through, whether it was looking at uh, machine learning, AI advancements, um, blockchain discussions, sh- certainly, and just regular governance. Um, yeah. That's where I would start, unless there's somewhere you no, think no, is... No, I think you're actually right. I know that was a point I was going to make, actually. I mean, um, so a few weeks ago, I wrote a story when I was at the SSNC Deliver conference about how, um, you know, we talk about AI and we talk about blockchain and we talk about quantum and all this good stuff, but really it's data management products that are still front and center the priority for most buy-side firms. And yeah. that, I think, was borne out by the content in that conference. But everyone loves to talk about AI, but at the heart of it, and people kept making this point as well, including uh, Dessa Glasser, who was the uh, CDO at JP Morgan Asset yep. Management, um, and a few other very experienced people were just saying, look, AI is great, machine learning is great, but you ain't going to get nowhere until you sort out your data first, and that has to be done. So, now, you know, this is so buy side conference. It's interesting because the buy side, where there's, I guess, some sort of homogeneity on the sell side. You know, your mm. bank, you know, banks, brokers, changes, they're all kind of in the same game in many ways. Buy side, that, that just runs in just different different directions oh, from yeah. your alternative hedge funds, your quant hedge funds, your well, asset uh, managers, your pension funds. a fund, huge difference funds. between a hedge fund and an asset manager yeah. right? in terms of your concerns and your priorities. Exactly. Like, massive. You may as well be in different sectors. So like, you know. even at this kind of a conference, when you go to a buy-side conference, you know, even like, you know, bring up the old TSAM or something like mm. that or some other, you know, uh, big buy-side conferences, it really does depend on who's up on stage, how they like to address this data question. Because yep. At least I find I could be off base on this. You talk to more of your quant prop trading shops, um, your, your, or your quant hedge funds that are really sophisticated, and then your prop trading shops are in for speed and stuff like that. They don't care about the clients. They don't care about the. Sh- they, they're like, we will do that end of it. We that's how we're going to make our alpha. That's how we're going to be different than you. You guys need to talk about the quant, the quality, and everything like that. And I think that's. Maybe sometimes where the data question, people like to think that all data, yeah, we can just give me all the data, we'll do it. If you're very sophisticated and you have the infrastructure built, yes, you can do it. You yep. can get away with sucking in data feeds that are, you know, all over the place, unstructured, um, where there's overlap and where you got to go and clean through it yourself. And it's manual intensive and it's also 
Um, it requires a lot of technology underpinning that. It does. Yeah. Um, so what I think that the difference is that you got to be careful. You got to think about who is saying it. And for the majority of firms on the buy side, yes, you want to use machine learning AI. You know, you want to build your blockchains and you want to take advantage of all these things. The quality and the cleanliness of that data is it's paramount. And um, yeah, I think it's interesting again coming back to SSNC Deliver. When I was there, I was speaking to a bunch of guys from family offices, and um, uh, it's the equivalent yeah. of superannuation funds, pension funds over here. You know, actual asset owners rather than just asset allocators and everything else. Um, uh, and they were just saying, like, everyone waxes on about like data management and data governance and cleanliness, and saying that works for a BlackRock and it works for a legal in general and everything else. For me. If you're my service provider and you're giving me crappy data, I'm just going to fight you and I'm going to yeah. go somewhere else. I don't, I don't, I haven't got the time to worry about this. Like I'm a family office. I'm being paid out the family's money to manage their money, yeah. not to waste it on putting data committees in place and exactly. everything else. It's like, and yes, I will use machine learning when Broadridge or when SSNC or whatever puts machine learning in their products. Because <laughs> at the end, I don't care. At the yeah. end of the day, like you know, I want to generate alpha, yes, but I don't want to spend my employer's money. Um, and have that bite into my return just to get a fancy new strategy to yeah. generate it. I mean, you know, I think you, that's a key point. You really have to be careful about who you're talking about and these yeah. things and who and you're talking to. It's why, you know, like, that's why groups like, you know, we had on Greg Spisky uh, from Thesos Group uh, a while back. But, you know, they're the ones that are they're doing the heavy lifting for you on that end. You're yeah. then going to take in and figure out how to use that information. Um, and, I, you know, one th- there was... Uh, Micah Chen, Michael Chen from, um, he's a portfolio manager at uh, Panagor Asset Panagor, Management. Yeah. And so first of all, he gave an outstanding keynote address on on machine learning, like, and was, really broke it down it really very expertly. Good. And it was interesting as hell. Um, highly recommend if, if, you, if you're running a conference or something, this guy's he's, he's really good at explaining a complex subject. And so he's talking about alternative data. And, you know, he specializes in ESG, environmental, social, and governance. Uh, data, but one point says um, that he warned that firms uh, shouldn't try. This is from uh, Amelia David wrote this article. Uh, Chen warned that firms shouldn't try to make their strategy fit the latest cool data sets, but should take advantage of them only where they fit specific investment needs. This is another area where the hammer and nail problem. You, you don't mm-hmm. want that. You know, it's like what is what am I looking into? So his quote is. For example, if we have a pharma strategy, we come at it as an investment question first, then look for data sets. We try to think like an executive in an industry and we ask, how would that help me? Then we can see where that data would be most useful to us. Um, So Panagora evaluates any ESG data set in the same way that they would treat any other alpha factor. So uh, Chen continues, uh, goes through a rigorous testing, just like any other type of research. One factor we access is materiality, uh, whether an ESG factor is material to a company's core operations. For example, carbon emissions for industrials or material manufacturers. And we find that if a company improves its carbon footprint, its overall performance tends to improve. And what I liked about him talking about ESG specifically is, yeah, there's a lot of good that you know ESG, that, that, that this will help move the market forward. But at the end of the day... We just we're here to make alpha. We're here to make money. That's that's what the job is. I literally had to say to one of my reporters earlier. I was like, just bear this in mind when you listen to people talk about this. At the end of the day, it's about making money. You're not saving the world. A byproduct of this can be that the world can improve by it. Also, don't put the pressure on yourself to try and change the world. You're just trying to make exactly. alpha. It's just cold math, cold like hard math, isn't it? It's like yeah. if this company has a reputational issue that comes across, it's going to be much better for their stock price if they're already well liked than if they're already hated. So everyone hates Gap because they exploit 
you know, or reported exploit uh, third world country um, people, right, in their factories and that kind of yeah. thing. So when that comes out, obviously it's hugely damaging because the guys are right there. Whereas if you go to someone like, uh, I don't know, some who's America's darling company, like... Uh, Tesla. Know, Tesla, yeah. <laughs> a company called Lush, for instance, yeah. in the UK, which produces bath products and which is very sort of environmentally conscious and everyone likes them, they're very like good and that kind of thing. Something comes out about them, it's not going to be as much damage uh, yeah. and therefore their stock price isn't going to move as much. It's as simple as that. Like Your investment is going to be safer yeah. with these companies. It's not because you're an ardent believer in environmental protection and that's what you're only going to invest in and you don't and you believe in gun control so you're not going to invest in gun companies. No, it's because they're more susceptible to... Uh, yeah, at one point Michael was like, notes. listen, the RHG, a lot of people aren't going to care about you know whether or not we have a recycling program in our office here. You know, right, but, exactly. it, yeah. it's, but if you are in an industrial company... That's going to matter very much as to whether or not somebody's going to invest in you. So. Exactly, yeah. The other thing I liked was uh, Michael McGovern, uh, Enterprise Chief Information Officer for Brown Brothers Harriman. And this is, I think, where we're moving into, and this is kind of the whole point of what we're talking about with data, too. It, it, data's always been important. It's, we've always been banging on about this, and it's been from when I started nine years ago to when Max Bowie started 20 years ago yeah. uh, to, I'm sure, well beyond that, that data is so important, but it's just increasingly so. And so he said that, you know, the tools, you know, to handle these data, the AI, the blockchain, all these different kind of things, cool little things, whether or OMSs, whatever. Um, the tools are great, but it's an expertise that is important. So we all need to become citizen data scientists. And if you want a job in the future, this is where you're going to have to start to realize, you know, that this isn't something where, you know, I just work on, blindly work on an Excel spreadsheet and I you really got to start to evolve and to understand how to manipulate, use, um, distribute the data, the information. Hey. If you can develop those skills, that's where the jobs of the future are going to be. Um, if not, then you're going to get moved and eventually replaced. Even on a company level, I've had numerous conversations with BNP Paribas, for instance, over the years, where they've referred to themselves as in the future being a data custodian rather than just a financial custodian. That's yeah. where the future is. Like You have to learn the skill set and you have to learn... Not just the, uh, the the data scientist, uh, but everyone has to learn how to properly manage and deal with data. Yeah. And I think there's a risk as well when we talk about this stuff. Like, we use data and it becomes almost like a catechism kind of thing. Like, you know, where we just, oh, data, it's this big amorphous kind of entity where we can't get our hands around it. It's the everyday, people need to be educated about what the data is, whether it's just your index data coming through on an email from your mate, or whether it's um, big enterprise-wide data that fills terabytes of space on a, a hard drive. Like, everything needs to be managed and people need to be educated, I think, and then you remove a lot of this confusion. Yeah. And a lot of the circular conversation that goes on in this industry, like, it doesn't help, I don't think. The fact that you go to every conference and there's always an EDM panel mm-hmm. and it always says exactly the same thing, there's always a data governance panel, always says exactly the same thing, and, like, the conversation never moves on. And I know that sounds... Well, it's because yeah. it hasn't moved on, right? I guess that you keep on having these panels. Is it is it a chicken and egg kind of a thing, too? Because where the reason why you have it is because, quite frankly, these are still just massive. Well, no, People that... haven't solved the problem yet. It's kind of like the, the talent question. I hate hearing oh, God, talent is so important. It's like, no shit. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not a question. It's not a discussion that's getting us anywhere. But it is still always a problem, right? I think it's because you get six guys on a panel who are all data management specialists talking to a room full of data management specialists uh, and they're all talking among themselves about something yeah. like you know it's like us uh, when you me and and the, and the guys and girls from rest go down the pub yeah. we end up just talking about journalism the whole time yeah. right because that's our career that's our industry yeah 
Um, and nothing ever gets solved because we just end up having this circular conversation about uh, working habits. But by the time we leave that bar, we think that we're going to solve every problem that exists. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and we all know that risk is the devil. And we've beaten them down <laughs> enough to know that they should be re- literally kissing the ground and we walk on it um, when Waters comes in the office. But um, anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, I think the point is that we keep having these conversations and nothing keeps changing because it's still preaching to a converted quiet, right? So... Um, you need to have these conversations with people who aren't exposed to it and you don't understand but, it. So Okay, so then play devil's advocate here. How do you have a conversation then about data with people that don't understand data? Because that's the other thing, is talking with people on risk. They are only now starting to realize the benefits of technology, of the importance yeah. of data. So certainly you're not going to bring on you know these guys that, that can't have this conversation expect them to really contribute no, no, in any and, intellectual and look, and way, right? But this is the way you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to get the portfolio managers and the guys on the trading floor yeah. to go to a mandatory session on data management, and they're going to hate it. Yeah. And they're going to think it's a waste of their time, and they're not going to bother turning up. And then the guy who doesn't turn up suddenly gets suspended for two weeks. Yeah. Or the guy who gets the training and list, doesn't listen and then commits the next uh, data licensing breach when they get audited by uh, an exchange, he has to pay a portion of the fine. Very quickly, you'll notice that people take notice of this because it comes in an important part of their job. In the same way that a journalist, you know, a a cub reporter, again, this is what it's like down the bar, um, (laughs) never really takes much notice of, of, like, legal training and stuff like that until they get a letter through saying, you've defamed our company, we're going to initiate legal proceedings against you. Then you take it very seriously after that. So, yeah. It's, it's, well, I guess this is why we have these conferences, whether or not we're moving the ball forward or not. But it is funny how... The conversation doesn't change, and this isn't just an argument. This is you go go to TCM. FIA Chicago is next week, and then FIA Boca will be in uh, February or March. March. Yeah. It'll still be the same conversations. You know, no, yeah. things will move forward. There's always, I'm sorry, there are always new topics, but the underlying thing about data quality, data management, data governance, uh, talent. We uh, need to see level. We need to have yeah. you know, God, how long. Nothing, you know, the, 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 the change in the diversity is has been painfully slow. You know, this mm-hmm. is, th- these are discussions that we keep having, we keep saying how important it is. But then when we go back home, at the end of the day, we talked about how important it was. But, yeah, at the end yeah. of the day, was it really? Yeah, exactly. So, um, so look forward to our conference program <laughs> next year, which is going to be uh, <laughs> data governance. What is USA, guys? Yeah, yeah. Don't worry, this is our big one. Uh, we have that one coming up in December. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I guess then for a fun topic or, you know, just different topic here, just to close it out since we don't have any guests this week, but we have a couple good ones coming up actually. Again, can't, just in case people cancel, can't uh, quite give away yet, but we have a huge, 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 uh, data company coming on in in a week. It's supposed to be a week. Nice. It's been pushed back a couple times, so. We'll see, but hopefully. Um, but I think you guys will dig that conversation. I know you guys will dig that conversation. Um, that one will, will go along with that one. Um, but, yeah, uh, I am reading. Uh, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of Doris Kearns Goodwin, mm-hmm. uh, historian, um, has written some of the definitive books around um, uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, and uh, Lincoln, uh, Team of Rivals, is my favorite nonfiction book that I've ever read. And so she got a new book out called Leadership, and it's really, really interesting. So she looks at those three guys, uh, those three presidents, and also um, LBJ, uh, Lyndon Bain Johnson. Uh, Lyndon Bain Johnson. Lyndon. 
I always just say Lyndon B. Johnson. LBJ. LBJ. Nailed it. I'm a historian. <laughs> um, so he, she looks at those four presidencies, tries to find kind of common uh, threads yeah. that led to their leadership qualities, um, some upbringings, but then also where they diverge. And yeah, it's really, really, really an interesting book. If you read Team of Rivals, the Lincoln piece has a lot of overlap. But one thing that she, you know, hits on in this one as well as was brought up then that I found fascinating because it was uh, World Mental Health Awareness Day, World uh, Mental Health Awareness I, I, I'm not sure the exact title of that day, but it was the other day. And looking at how Lincoln suffered for decades with at times crippling depression, mm-hmm. um, both after his first wife died um, he, for the, his year and a half engagement to Mary Todd, um, just crushing depression they went through, suicidal um, after the passing. Like uh, she writes that you know he would walk into the woods with a shotgun sometimes, and just wow. stuff that you don't really know about his early pre-presidential days. Oh, this is before he was. President. This was before he was president. Wow. And then you know he just he he managed to to with kind of determination and focus to understand that that there were bigger things and that there were things that he still wanted to achieve and he, he you know through just grit and determination i guess just compartmentalized um, it and shoved it back in the box yeah. until it was kind of time yeah, it was always again. there it's always it, it's not something that goes away right yeah, yeah, it's, sure. it's always there but he 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 found other outlets and in this case you know, his his ambitions to rise up the political spectrum and eventually became president, obviously. And just to be able to achieve what he achieved, um, despite, you know, the, just that being such a, a weight that was always on him, it's it's inspiring. It, it's oh, yeah. really, really, and especially as, you know, we have the World Mental Health Awareness Day, it was really one of those things that I'm sure many, many of our listeners, you know, go through this and, you know, whether it's depression, anxiety, things that can be crippling. And where there were times where he, where Lincoln worked for weeks just wouldn't do anything. He was just yeah. incapacitated. And it was really an inspiring story. It's really yeah, something it's, to check out. I mean, I think, yeah, and, you know, given that it was World Mental Health Awareness Day, uh, whatever it was, you know, I'd, I mean, I've, thank God, never suffered from any diagnosed mental uh, health problem yeah. whatsoever. Um, I have. I certainly yeah, have. <laughs> um, but I have family members who, who yeah. have them. Um, and I I mean, I don't know personally kind of what depression feels like, and like chronic depression and, yeah. and anxiety and things like that, but I've seen the effect that it has on people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of people say they have mental health issues to kind of excuse some of their laziness or whatever. People who generally suffer from it, um, you know, a lot of memes were passed around Facebook and stuff. But one that really struck me, I think, was that, you know, most people struggle to get out of bed and face the day as it is anyway and to face challenges they have to come across sure. and most people fail. But imagine doing that when you have that additional burden on top and you're kind of fighting your own mind as well as, like, you know, um, doing that. I have incredible respect for anybody who suffers from this well, and still manages to live their life in a functional way. It's, you know what's funny you know, is, like, so for me, I, I never had uh, experience. For me, like, anxiety just became, I turned 37, I would say, that this happened was. And just had a panic attack one day. Yeah, the switch just kind of. And I thought I was having a heart attack, and so I went to the doctor and everything like that. I, I, was, I was really kind of. I got up dizzy and just like my heart racing. I'm just like. Was I, this I, in I the plane or like the subway? Or, or? No, I was at home. Um, it was funny that you know it, it, 
it wasn't really anything that was anything of a stress level. And then the second time it happened, I was in a car stuck in traffic and I felt trapped. Mm-hmm. And again, I thought I was having a heart attack. You know, I was like, oh my God, uh, my girlfriend Alice was with me at the time. And I didn't understand what was happening. And it was, I, you know, every single day just feeling crushing. Like I, I never felt it. And I was like, God, is this, is this just what my life is going to be like for the rest of my life? Because I don't know how I'm going to be able to cope with that. You know, you start going to see uh, some specialists and stuff like that. And you start to realize what it is. For me, I've been able to understand that when these moments happen, I've been able to understand what is happening. But yeah. it's not something that goes away. It's not something no. that, you know, and, it, oh, no, it's and, a it's, massive impact and some people experience it far worse than I've ever experienced it. And that's, you know, just, and then, God, if you've gone through some horrible moments in your life, some traumatic yeah. moments in your life, how you kind of overcome that and oh, come yeah. through the other end. A couple of that with PTSD and stuff, and yeah. you've got a, a perfect cocktail of sure. a disaster, right? Exactly. I mean, you know. Uh, like I had a friend who uh, who was a, a army veteran, um, who uh, we never quite worked out whether this was because of his PTSD or, or whether it kind of enhances PTSD. But he used to have um, what's that condition you have where you have to have things in a perfect order? Um, like you know, um, if then something's moved yeah, slightly yeah. out of place, it's uh, obsessive compulsive yeah. disorder. Um, and over the years, it sort of developed branched from that into full blown PTSD. And now it's kind of blossomed to full-blown anxiety as well. And I'm yeah. just thinking, like, this guy still gets up. He goes to work every day. Um, you know, he looks after his daughter and all the rest of it, raises her by himself. And, like, I, I caught up with him the other day, and I was like, how are things? He's just like, every day is a waking nightmare. Yeah. But you just got to struggle through it. That's well, you know, it's funny because that's the thing is, like, the other problem that I found, that I initially found was, everybody's, you know, the last thing you ever want to hear is just suck it up and just do it. You know? sure. it's, yeah. a, it's the last thing that you want to hear. Um, and... But each person has to figure out his or her um, how they're going to cope with it. And the reason why I liked the Lincoln piece of this was, you know, just to go from that and just to understand that this isn't something new. This isn't, you know, because a lot of people like say, you know, it's uh, oh, it a well, product of modern it's society. It's a Park well, Avenue yeah. term, you know, stress yeah, yeah. and anxiety. And yeah, sometimes it is used then. Sometimes it, it's, you know, it's, it's overblown in some cases, certainly. But this is something that exists for forever. And, but it doesn't mean that it has to be in it, that, this, that there is, if, it's never going to be easy. Just understand that. Yeah. It's, it's always going to be a challenge. And, you know, you got to embrace that challenge in some ways and then find out what is, what works for you. Because what works for me isn't going to work for you. Some people need medication. Some people don't need medication. Yeah. I'm not, I don't take medication. I tried to medication. It just didn't work for me at all. It just kind of came down to mental exercises and breathing exercises. You've got to talk but, to people, right? This oh, yeah. Okay. And mean, that's the so, other thing you know. is, some people like to bury that in. Especially men, is what yeah. I think. It likes to compartmentalize it and sort of do it. And I, I realized, uh, <laughs> saying this into a microphone that will be listened to a bunch of people, but initially when it happened was, some people, I, I think that some people go wrong, but maybe, I don't know, maybe it works from is spreading too much of that on social media sites, looking for it. And then you kind of open yourself up to people that don't care about it or you know, you're not getting help. You need to talk about it with the people that are close to you, people that you yeah. trust first. I th- at least think that that's always a good way. And I don't know. Objective <laughs> folks, your actual yeah. physicians who have studied and got a medical degree. Yeah. Like I've seen uh, groups of friends before, of like people who started off with very mild depression, uh, you know, g- got talking to other people who had more severe forms of it, and before you know it, there's metastasized into suicidal kind of, you know, I want my life to end kind of style yeah. depression. And it gets kind of cabalistic when you talk about it in the way. So, yeah. you know, professional people who are trained how to deal with it, your family, your friends, it's important to talk. I yeah. It's, yeah. So that's obviously pretty heavy. Got to 
book review maybe you know anything interesting that you're reading that uh that maybe people can take their mind off of uh some of the stress and anxiety yeah, that yeah, they experience yeah, in life two things i'm reading right now one is a book called the city stained red by sam the Sykes. city stained, stained red, red. Um, stayed or stained stained so, um, it's a fantasy novel. We all struggle understanding James. Oh, yeah, we do. <laughs> this is why you shouldn't put me on stage. Uh, Bradley Lamas, producer of BST North America, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> you did a great job. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Cheers. Um, it's just written so well, so snappily. Um, the guy has such an ear for dialogue. Um, the whole thing is just like a basic fantasy adventure, but he's a very funny guy. Um, it's very distracting. The other thing I'm sort of reading which I picked up a few years ago and, and never actually finished, was a book called Old Man's War by uh, John Scalzi, which is kind of like The Forever War. It's a classic science fiction uh, book by Joe Haldeman, which in itself was ripped off Starship Troopers by Robert Heinlein. Um, but again, very breezy written, uh, excellent. If you like sort of military science fiction, that's something I'd recommend. It takes your mind off it. Nice. So, yeah. Very good. And uh, if you want, on Netflix, I just finished watching, Joe Rogan has a new uh, stand-up. Oh, he the does? The Fear Factor guy, the yeah. UFC guy. Great, great comedian. People don't realize that he's, that's how we got to start. Oh, I, I listen to his uh, podcast all the time. Yeah, his podcast. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, I highly. God, this was this was one of the better uh, stand-ups I've seen in a long time. So maybe that's uh, worth checking. Have out you too. checked out American Vandal season two yet? I just started. Got through the first episode. It's and, disgusting. Uh, yeah. It's but, funny. I'll be interested now. Granted, after I watched the first episode of season one, I was like, I don't know. Is this really gonna? Am I gonna really care about this five? This one, I'm kind of like. I already kind of get the whole plot because, you know, season one was, I can imagine, I, I think I'm, it'll be like one of those, I would like it, but God, it's like true detective. Yeah. I actually liked season two, but God, it's tough to top season it's, one. Yeah, so I, true detectives are good. I know we're sort of rambling here, so I'll wrap up yeah, quickly, no, but um, it's going all over. season one, love true detective. I watched season two expecting season one again, didn't get it. And I was like, what the hell is this? It was yeah. like kind of, you know, um, it was Reservoir Dogs to Pulp Fiction. Kind yeah, of thing. exactly. Um, but I watched season two again recently with a fresh mind. I was like, actually, this is really good. Like, yeah. This is just an LA kind of thriller uh, type thing. It's excellent. Well, it's so. kind of like The and the Wire is another one. Like season one, season two, people, a lot of people go, oh, I didn't like season two at all. Mm. I watched The Wire on kind of, like season two actually turned, yeah, there's some, like Ziggy's character sucked, but. That was a great season, actually. You know, actually, the season I don't like is season five, which was the journalism one. You know, yeah, that, was that's a, that was the one I was looking forward to the most and enjoyed the least. Yeah, actually. exactly. Was, so, yeah. anyway, anyway, we're just now. Let's go to the bar. And let's we'll go to the bar. On yeah. Um, so yeah, hopefully next week we'll have a very good guest for you guys. If not, then uh, this person said it. It's not Nuriel Rabini, in it's, case you wonder. You weren't dropping heavy hints about it earlier, but if you do want to be that, podcast, yeah, Nuriel, so. I will drop the other guy. You know, come on. Um, <laughs> But yeah, um, so yeah, if anything that we touched on you find of interest, uh, please uh, reach out to us. We're always interested for new topics and ideas or just a different way of looking at things. Otherwise, uh, we hope that you enjoy the week and we will see you here next week. Cheers, guys.